Hello, and welcome back to Eternal Youth. I'm Nicholas Barrett, and in this podcast, I test the idea that to understand a person, you have to look at what was happening in the world when they were 20. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about one of my favourite novelists, Vladimir Nabokov. To get a grip of who Nabokov was, we have to talk about his family. In Tsarist Russia, the Nabokovs embody the elite. Nabokov's grandfather, Dmitry Nabokov, was justice minister under Tsar Alexander. Nabokov's father, Vladimir Dmitrievich Nabokov, was the editor of a liberal newspaper called Speech. This episode is very much a tale of two Nabokovs, so from now on, to avoid confusion, I'll be calling Nabokov's father V.D. Nabokov. So how elite is this family? Well, you might remember that War and Peace starts with Russian aristocrats telling each other jokes in French. And before the revolution, it wasn't uncommon for wealthy Russians to talk to each other in an entirely different language from the one spoken by peasants and workers. And when Vladimir Nabokov was a child, he learns English before he learns Russian, and his father has to hire a Russian tutor to help him brush up on his second language. At a time of mass poverty, hunger and hardship, the Nabokovs have various properties in and around St. Petersburg, and are waited on by 50 servants. They are unambiguously members of the bourgeoisie. So far in this podcast, I've tried to stick to the year when my subjects turn 20. This time, I need to take more of a run-up, because when Vladimir is six, Russia has its first revolution, when thousands of unarmed demonstrators tried to deliver a petition to Tsar Nicholas II. The petition called for fairer wages, better working conditions, and an eight-hour workday. But when these protesters marched to the palace, they were gunned down by the Tsar's soldiers. This is what became known as Bloody Sunday. In response to the public outcry, Nicholas reluctantly allowed elections for a new parliament, a Duma. Among those elected was V.D. Nabokov, who used his new position to campaign against anti-Semitism and against the death penalty. So Vladimir grows up in St. Petersburg, where he spends his time collecting butterflies and reading poetry by Alexander Pushkin. We can get a glimpse of Nabokov's nostalgia for pre-war Russia and pre-revolutionary Russia, and his abilities as a poet from a poem he wrote in 1924. We know it's nostalgic because it's not called Petrograd, it's not called Leningrad, it's called St. Petersburg. And it goes like this. Come hither, nebulous Leela, forsaken spring to me return. Along their boundary eagles shimmer, with lazy murmurs the nerver. Like leaf flows, an elbow mark was left by Pushkin on the granite. Leela, stop it, that will do. Stop weeping, oh my springtime begone. Just look what a fine fish, like blue, is limed upon the floating springboard, in Peter's pastel sky all hushed, as a flotilla of airy vapours, and the octagonal wood purveyors still have their layers of golden dust. We all know what happens next. Russia joins the First World War against Austria and Germany. St. Petersburg is renamed Petrograd, to sound less German, but Vladimir is still a schoolboy, and there's a name following him around. He keeps seeing it. And here's how he describes it. Quote, that hushed July afternoon when I discovered her standing quite still, only her eyes were moving in a birch grove. She seemed to have been spontaneously generated there, among those watchful trees, with the silent completeness of a mythological manifestation. And soon they get talking, and he's instantly impressed by her sense of humour, and what he calls her vast store of minor poetry. Because they're not considered social equals in Tsarist Russia, they can't visit each other's homes. Instead, they start skipping school together to while away the summer on the banks of the rivers on the edge of Petrograd. Pretty soon, he starts to tell her that he'll marry her 
at the end of 1917. But life comes at them fast. The Russian winter of 1916-1917 is one of the coldest on record. By now, over 6 million Russian soldiers have been captured, wounded or killed fighting in the First World War. Thousands had also deserted, and many of them had flooded into Petrograd in search of food. But they couldn't find it because the railways that normally carried grain into the cities had broken down under the strain of the war effort. The grain was piling up in the countryside while the trains that were still running carried soldiers and ammunition to the front line. On February 23rd, Petrograd's bakeries ran out of flour, just before a pre-planned march through the city for International Women's Day. That march became the first in a series of bread riots. This time, the police didn't intervene, meaning that Nicholas had lost control. All his authority was gone. He abdicates. At this point, the Russians are like, dude, where's my Tsar? But he's not coming back. This is Tsarmageddon. Now, detail is always welcome. And when Nicholas abdicates, he passes power to his brother, who is quickly proclaimed Emperor Michael II. But this was silly because Nicholas had a son and Russians were tired of monarchy. So Michael signs a letter refusing the throne, a letter which ends 304 years of the Romanov dynasty. And the text of that letter was drafted by VD Nabokov. And at this point, VD is feeling pretty optimistic. Looking back, he writes, quote, It seemed to me that something great and sacred had occurred, that the people had cast off their chains, that despotism had collapsed. VD is a prominent member of the Constitutional Democratic Party, known as the Cadets. They are liberals, not communists. The new provisional government is run by Alexander Kerensky. It takes over after the fall of the Tsar and wants to be seen to be trying to strike a balance of power between liberals and socialists. They want VD to be part of the government, but they don't want him to look as if he's too powerful. They ask him to be the governor of Finland, but he suggests becoming head of the chancellery. Trotsky calls him a minister without portfolio, but he's actually working to reform the Russian justice system. The new government gets to work. In the first two months, it introduces freedom of thought, freedom of assembly, freedom of worship, and freedom of the press. It bans discrimination based on class, ethnicity, or religion. An eight-hour workday is introduced. Church is separated from state, and the country gets an independent justice system with trial by jury, and the death penalty is abolished. Elections are promised, and women will be allowed to vote. That sounds pretty good, right? But there are a couple of big problems. The first is the war. The First World War. The provisional government are still fighting against the Germans and Austrians. They have no intention of stopping and giving up, but they're not much better than their Tsarist predecessors. It's going really badly out there. The second problem are the communists, led by Lenin. They want to take over Russia, and they want to end the war immediately. And that makes them pretty popular. And all these liberal reforms are good for the communists, who are suddenly allowed to hold communist rallies criticising the war, print communist newspapers attacking the provisional government, and meet to organise the next revolution. You can't legalise free assembly and then stop Lenin from re-entering Petrograd, which is what he does. Back at home, in a poem called Revolution, the teenage Nabokov writes, But now, the fateful word above my childhood tales, storm-like has rushed, gone is their old simplicity, and terrifying thoughts during the doomful nights now crepitate like grey newspaper sheets. As the provisional government limps on through 1917, VD is starting to realise that he's not very good at politics. Understandably, he's considered a paragon of the old status quo. This is a time where lots of political factions are competing to shape the future of Russia. Later, he admits that, quote, When I had to take part in meetings to whip up enthusiasm for the party, I often felt an oppressive awkwardness 
I felt as if I was perpetuating an act of mental violence on my audience, who should choose for themselves which party to follow. Meanwhile, the communists are full of passionate intensity. You don't see Lenin or Trotsky with such anxieties and reservations. They want to move power from the provisional government's constituent assembly to the Soviet, an assembly of peasants and workers, and they will end the war. Meanwhile, Vladimir Nabokov and Valentina, who he calls Tamara in speak memory, have drifted apart. That can happen when you're young and you don't really know what you've got until it's gone forever. Here's how Nabokov describes it in speak memory. During that last summer in the country, we used to part forever after each secret meeting, when, in the fluid blackness of the night, on that old wooden bridge between Mast Moon and Misty River, I would kiss her warm, wet eyelids and rain-chilled face, and immediately after go back to her for yet another farewell. And then, long, dark, wobbly uphill ride, my slow, laboriously pedalling feet trying to press down the monstrously strong and resilient darkness that refused to stay under. I do remember, however, with heartbreaking vividness, a certain evening in the summer of 1917, when, after a winter of incomprehensible separation, I chanced to meet Tamara on a suburban train. For a few minutes, between two stops, in the vestibule of a rocking and rasping car, we stood next to each other, I in a state of intense embarrassment, of crushing regret, she consuming a bar of chocolate, methodically breaking off small, hard bits of the stuff, and talking of the office where she worked. On one side of the track, above bluish bogs, the dark smoke of burning peat was mingling with the smouldering wreck of a huge amber sunset. It can be proved, I think, by published record that Alexander Block was even then noting in his diary the very peat smoke I saw and the wretched sky. There was later a period in my life when I might have found this relevant to my last glimpse of Tamara as she turned on the steps to look back at me before descending into the jasmine-scented cricket-mad dusk of a small station. But today, no alien marginalia can dim the purity of the pain. I think a lot of people have moments like this in their memory from when they were young. Whether it was months, years or even decades ago, you can still see and feel every little detail of a moment when a certain path in life seemed to close forever right in front of your eyes. As summer turns to autumn, VD asks Alexander Kerensky if he's worried about a communist uprising. But Kerensky has underestimated his opponents and tells VD that he's praying for such an uprising and that he has more than enough force to suppress it. He thinks he can crush the communists when they try to take power, but he couldn't be more wrong. On the night of the October Revolution, Trotsky had quietly moved armed men into the banks, railway stations and telephone exchanges. Vidi Nabokov leaves the Winter Palace for the last time, about 20 minutes before it's stormed by the communists. Half a mile away, in the family townhouse, his son hears rifles crackle through his window. At this point, there is still elections scheduled to take place, and Vidi wants to stay in Petrograd to help organise them. But now he's worried that his son might be enlisted into the Red Army, so he puts his family on a train to Crimea. Vidi Nabokov's Liberal Party, the cadets, had won the election after the first revolution all the way back in 1905. But after that election, the Tsar just ignored the Duma. So as conditions in Russia deteriorated, so did the party's popularity. In the 1917 election, the cadets get a pathetic 4% of the vote. Lenin gets 23% of the vote and finishes second. The winner is the Socialist Revolutionary Party. But Lenin has already taken control of the government, which promptly decides that the newly elected assembly is a bourgeois institution that will hinder the revolutionary transformations they aim to implement. 
so they dissolve it. Lenin also orders the arrest of the cadet leadership, and Vini Lebokov spends five days in prison, and his liberal newspaper is closed down forever. At this point, the safest thing for him to do is to flee the city and reunite with his son. When the news reaches Vladimir in Crimea, he drafts a new poem. Slowly you wander through the sleepless streets. From your sad brow gone is the former ray that called us towards love and shining heights. Your trembling hand holds an extinguished taper, dragging your broken wings over dead men, your blood-stained elbow covering your eyes. Once more deceived, you once again depart, and the old knight, alas, remains behind. Crimea itself now enters a period of what can only be described as absolute chaos. First, the Red Army arrives and attacks Yalta, where shops are looted and army officers are thrown into the harbour, with weights attached to their legs. The Nabokovs are staying in the villa belonging to a friend, where they take turns patrolling the house during the night. Then the peninsula is occupied by Germany, who are trying to take advantage of the revolution and grab as much land as they possibly can. It's a relief to those who, like VD, felt as if they could have been executed by the Soviets at any moment. Then the German Empire collapses when they lose the First World War, and Crimea forms its own government. And this government seeks the services of VD Nabokov, who does exactly what he did in Petrograd. He tries to reform the justice system through a provisional government. Meanwhile, Vladimir spends his days collecting and cataloguing butterflies. And it's during this time that he starts to work on his first published scientific paper on the butterflies of Crimea. That's pretty impressive considering the fact that he has no formal academic training in lepidoptery, or even biology, or anything for that matter. He's only 20 years old. He's also receiving letters from Valentina, a.k.a. Tamara, who sends him vivid descriptions of the countryside around Petrograd as she reminisces about their time together. By now, Russia is in a state of civil war. Any letter that finds Vladimir in Crimea is a minor miracle. And when his replies are slow getting back to Petrograd, Valentina assumes that he's losing interest all over again. But if anything, the opposite is true. Absence is making his heart grow stronger, and Nabokov is increasingly preoccupied by the person he can't be with. Now, the new Crimean government is dependent on the white Russians, the anti-communist faction. But the white Russian army isn't easy to get behind. They want to restore the monarchy, and so for many people in Russia they represent a return to despotism. They also become notorious for anti-Semitic pogroms, and for mistreating their own troops. And they're not particularly competent on the battlefield either. Despite this, Vladimir's cousin, Yuri, has joined the white army to fight the Reds. Vladimir stays back in Crimea, where he writes a poem called Russia. It is all the same with me, whether you are called a slave, a mercenary, or just crazy. You are shining, I'll take a look, and remember happiness. Yes, these rays will not get in. You are in my passion, and in my solemn suffering, and in a woman's slow gaze, in fields illuminated, cold and virgin, you blossomed like a blue flower. You led autumn through the tear-stained groves and kissed my eyelashes in the spring. In stuffy churches, you repeated after the deacon the blind words of liturgy. In the summer, you flashed with lightning across the cornfields. On a winter day, I saw your face in the hoarfrost. With me at night, you bent over the pages of powerful songbooks. You were and will be. I was mysteriously created from the splendour and fluff of your clouds. When the starry night splashes over me, I hear your crying call. You are in my heart, Russia. You are the chain and the foot. You are in the murmur of blood, in the confusion of dreams. 
But why should I stray into this age of indifference? You shine to me as before. And shortly after writing this poem, he learns that his cousin has been killed on the battlefield. The war is going badly for the White Army, and as 1919 drags on, they lose control of the Crimean Peninsula. The situation is about to deteriorate further when VD Nabokov prosecutes White Army officers for murdering two Jews in Yalta. The prosecutions damaged the relationship between the government and the army, which was already running low on morale. The Red Army are coming, and the Nabokovs are forced to flee to Sevastopol, where Vladimir spends one last week in Russia, in room 7 of the Hotel Metropole, where he writes one more poem. Not quite a bed, not quite a bench. Wallpaper, a grim yellow. A pair of chairs, a squinty-looking glass. We enter, my shadow and I. We open with a vibrant sound, the window. The light's reflection slides down to the ground. The night is breathless, distant dogs, with varied barks, fractured, and stillness. Stirless, I stand there at the window, and in the black bowl of the sky glows a golden drop of honey, the mellow moon. Vladimir Nabokov writes hundreds of poems throughout the revolution. The ones I've read are his own translations, and are just a tiny fraction of his work. A few days after this poem was written, the Red Army seized control of the hills overlooking the city and begin to bombard it. The Crimean government are evacuated by sea. The two Nabokovs, Vladimir and Vd, play chess on deck as their ship pulls out of the harbour and they leave Russia forever. One of the knights is missing a head and a rook has been replaced by a poker chip. And Vladimir can't concentrate on the game, not because he's going into exile, not because of the machine gun fire, but because he's imagining Valentina's unread letters searching for their reader, or as he put it, quote, they would still be coming, miraculously and needlessly, to southern Crimea, and would search there for a fugitive addressee, and weakly flap about, like bewildered butterflies, set loose in an alien zone, and the wrong altitude, among an unfamiliar flora. And that's where I'll leave young Nabokov, sailing into exile as Russia sinks into chaos. There were still rough seas ahead of him. In 1922, BD Nabokov was murdered at a political meeting in Berlin, he was killed by far-right Tsarists who were trying to assassinate Pavel Milikov, who had been the leader of the Cadet Party. In early 1945, Nabokov's brother, Sergei, starved to death in a German concentration camp. Nabokov himself fled the Nazis twice, once when he left Berlin and then again when Germany invaded France. So by 1947, the family had been forced out of Russia by the communists, losing its wealth and property in the process, and had also been decimated by fascism. 1947 was the year Nabokov published Bend Sinister, which along with Invitation to a Beheading is probably as close as he gets to dealing with the Russian Revolution in his novels. The book follows Adam Krug, a world-famous philosopher living under the dictatorship of the Average Man Party, led by the revolutionary dictator Paddock, who happens to have been bullied by Krug when they were at school together. It's only his second novel in English, and it's seldom talked about as one of his best. It's written about the same time that Orwell is writing 1984 and covers similar themes, but with a completely different style. At the start of the novel, the philosopher Krug thinks he's invincible. The regime wants him to sign a statement supporting their ideology, advocating the total equality of consciousness. But he won't do it. He's famous. He's a global celebrity. And so he thinks that if he's persecuted by the regime, there would be an international outcry and another country would take him in but he's warned by a less well-known intellectual that he's not untouchable because he's not alone. He has friends, he has a son. And it's not long before the regime starts to arrest his friends and family 
in an effort to grind him down. And by the end of the novel, it becomes clear that the dictator and the philosopher cannot coexist. Ben Sinister is clearly about communism. Sinister is the Latin word for left. And the text even contains extracts of Lenin's speeches. In his introduction, Nabokov insists that the novel wasn't any kind of social commentary and that he's not sincere and feels pretty indifferent about the future of mankind. This, he tells us, is a story about the absurd contrast between the strength of Krug's feelings his son, and the weakness of his agency in a totalitarian state. At the very end of the story, Krug goes mad when he realises how little control he has over events, and as he's about to die, Nabokov describes himself as the author getting up from his desk to go and collect moths. That's just how the story ends. Krug isn't just being played with by the dictator, he's being played with by the narrator. It's worth remembering that many of the ideas bubbling up through the revolution had been brought to the Russian public's attention by characters in novels by Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. In many ways, it was a very literary revolution. Lenin published his own ideas in a book called What is to be Done, a title borrowed from a popular revolutionary novel that had come 40 years earlier. The regime in Ben Sinister is brutish but polite. Just like in Lolita, the abhorrent is laundered by eloquence, to the extent that eloquence itself becomes a source of suspicion. And if you look across Nabokov's work in Invitation to a Beheading, in Laughter in the Dark, and in Lolita, you see a range of characters who essentially act as puppets falling over themselves in various theatres of humiliation. That feeling of being tossed around by history, or by your impulses, is everywhere. Nabokov's protagonists almost never have quite as much control as they think they have. So, as Ben Sinister shows us, Nabokov could never have become the Nabokov we know within the Soviet Union. He would have been crushed, he would have been destroyed, but perhaps we can thank the turbulence of the revolution and the powerlessness he must have felt for the works we have today. I was Nicholas Barrett. Thank you very much for your company.